dear friends. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with a special post-Hard Rock 100 episode recorded in conversation with my big brother, Jason Bowman. Longtime listeners of the show will know that after the 2021 edition of the Hard Rock 100, Jason interviewed me about the experience, which we posted here in the podcast feed, an episode that to this day is still one of our most popular ever. And now we are back to do it again, though in a race with a very different result. Jason leads the conversation as the host and I get to be a guest on my own show, which is awkward, but also super fun. Jason was present in person at Hard Rock last weekend. He witnessed my implosion, recovery, and eventual finish firsthand. So he was well positioned to guide this conversation, what I thought was a really engaging direction. I realize this episode is pretty self-involved, but I hope our recounting and reflection will be valuable for you, the amazing listeners of the show. Of course, we talk about the race, the unraveling, the recovery, the finish, and potentially the biggest question of all, that being, what comes next? As always, the Free Trail Podcast is presented by Speedland. If you haven't tried a pair of Speedlands yet, you're truly missing out on an amazing trail experience, whether you're rocking the mountain smashing SLHSB or the ultra plush GS TAM, you can feel the level of quality and care that went into these products designed and developed by co-founders Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon. Speedland footwear is produced in small quantities with the best materials to the exacting standards of the most serious trail athletes all over the world. I have to say, even though I had a tough race at Hard Rock last weekend, my GS TAMs held up and performed amazingly well under really difficult underfoot circumstances. Go pick up a pair today or you can pre-order the Cam Haynes Commission, the GSPGH. Both are available now at runspeedland.com where you can use code FREETRAIL10 to grab a super generous 10% discount. Runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10. If you're new to Free Trail, you should check out the rest of the shows in the Free Trail Podcast Network, Trail Society with Corinne Malcolm, Keely Henninger, and Hillary Allen. This week, they were joined by special guest Amelia Boone. Trail Society often tackles the biggest news of the moment in trail running, provides scientific perspective on training, nutrition, and other topics, and often confronts some of the harder topics in the sport about ethics and health and other things like that. Then, of course, we have the Sub Hub, hosted by MK Sullivan and Danny Moreno, where they cover the ascendant and super exciting world of sub-ultra-distance trail racing, currently getting ready to cover the iconic Swiss mountain race Sierra all as part of the Golden Trail World Series. Next, of course, we have the Trail Running Radio Show, hosted by none other than Ryan Trower and Hannah Allgood. This is a Spotify exclusive podcast and it's a totally novel format where Ryan and Hannah share their favorite music between engaging bits of trail banter. Music people will love this podcast. It's like morning FM radio, but for trail running. So check out Trail Running Radio. And finally, we have a brand new Mid-Packer podcast hosted by OG Free Trail member, Ultra Runner, dad and businessman, my good buddy, Troy Meadows, who is off to a great start sharing amazing stories from the incredible people in the middle and the back of the pack. Find these shows wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm sure you will love the conversations. Speaking of which, I hope you enjoy this hard rock deep dive with me and my big brother, Jason Bowman. See you in the outro. 
right. Hello. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. This is Jason Bowman, and I'm here today to continue a special tradition of interviewing Dylan for his uh, post-race report. And um, yeah, I'm especially glad to do this one. I was at the race this year, Hard Rock 100 in Silverton, and I, I'm a better person for having witnessed it. Um, and Dylan and I haven't spoken much uh, since the race so that we could, you know, have a brotherly conversation here. Uh, welcome, Dylan. Hey, baby. How are you? Hey, J-Bo. Glad we can do this again. I hope it's not the, the last time we do it. But <laughs> anyway, good to see you again. And yeah, like I uh, have mentioned to you and maybe in a few other places, the last time we did this after Hard Rock 2021, that's probably one of our most popular episodes of all time. So hopefully we can live up to that standard again. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack and uh just to relive really, but I feel, I figure we should do this in, in three parts or there's three things I think we should touch on. One is of course, just a race report of, you know, what happened, um, which will inevitably lead into, I hope some kind of big picture philosophies and ruminations. And then, um, yeah, we should talk about what comes next. So, um, yeah, for the listener, I'm, you know, I've been around these races for a long time, but I haven't been able to spectate at one for a long time. And I was really excited to go this year. Um, and I'm, you know, of course, very interested and compelled by the lofty implications of what what Dylan does. And in part, that's what I want to uncover a bit of today, because I know how affecting this race especially was for Dylan. And I also know how affecting it was for me and our family and our friends who were there and also those who were watching from afar. And uh, yeah, I actually listened to that interview we did after the last Hard Rock to prepare. And a couple things jumped out that I'm going to I'm going to quote you back to yourself to start here. Trigger warning. Perfect. Quote, I don't ever struggle with existential. Why am I doing this? I want to quit. This sucks. <laughs> Perfect. Does that hold true today, Dylan? Oh my gosh. That is the least true <laughs> thing, especially with the immediate, you know, in the immediate aftermath of this Hard Rock 100, which was highlighted with that being in the back of my head or more so in the front of my head for the entirety of the 30-hour mission. So, yes, I maybe uh, the universe was teaching me a lesson there and that was my my smugness came back to, to haunt me, but that was very much not the case at, at this year's Hard Rock. Yeah. And, you know, another line that I that I transcribed here says, when I race the best, it's always when I get to the start line and I can't wait to put myself through something. And what struck me about that, and I think this will be an interesting way in, is that, um, yeah, you know, life is almost always the opposite of that, which is to say we're most often unprepared for the things that we have to put ourselves through. We don't get to plan on massive obstacles that just arrive in front of us. So I guess my first question is, uh, what did you learn for putting yourself through something that you weren't necessarily all the way ready for? Oh my gosh. Okay. So huge question to start here, I guess. As first, is tradition. As is tradition. I think first, 
you know, just to say, like, I have not been okay after this one. You know, this one really just touched me deeply, like really, really hurt physically, psychologically, emotionally. And it's just brought up so many like deeper questions about what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my career? What am I doing with the sport? How do I want to have an impact? And we'll probably go through all that stuff. I have to say we did our weekly office hour Zoom call with our free trail community yesterday where we sort of did a bit of a race report and kind of talked about hard rock and how it unfolded and what some of the learnings were. And I started bawling in front of 80 people, like a complete blubbering emotional basket case. And I hope to not repeat that here. I hope to repeat it personally. (laughs) But I don't know, man. Like that one was not okay. Like that one really freaking hurt. And I could see it from a mile away what was going to happen and still went into the race with an attitude that, you know, let's try and compete. Let's try and repeat the flow state miracle day that I had in 2021. And it just in retrospect was so obvious that that was a really unintelligent, foolish way to approach this year's hard rock. And that I really set myself up to hurt in the way that I, did during the race that I have over the last five days. So, you know, I think top line, super, super proud, super happy that I finished. I wanted to quit so bad for so long and I'm sure we'll get to this, but I did quit. Like I told people I'm done, like I'm out and got into a bit of a verbal altercation with people trying to persuade me otherwise. Thank God those people won that argument. I made it to the finish line. Super happy about that. But holy shit, did it come at a cost? And now, holy shit, am I like stewing in existential question marks? <laughs> so. Yeah, good. And that seems to be, you know, from a distance, it seems like that stewing in existential question marks is something that is shared amongst all the participants, <clears throat> excuse me, of the sport. And I guess just for a a bit of initial context for the listener is Dylan did set two PRs on this race. And the first was a career best, which is to say longest effort at 30 hours and 25 minutes. Um, And the second record, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but number of times crying on course. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've never, never wept during a race before. And, uh, certainly, yeah, that was, that was a first for me. So let's get into just a little bit of like the day. Um, it seems to me like there are three kind of crux moments that I want you to go through and maybe you can just talk us through these, but the first is, um, getting into your a, and the second is getting into Chapman. Your a is my all, I think 55. It's like 58, 58. Uh, the second is getting it to Chapman, which is mile 82. And then the third moment, um, is getting to the river and also to the finish. So let's just kind of go through the day a little bit, take us through, um, those things or any other things that stand out in your memory. Well, starting from the beginning, 
you know, last time we recorded this type of episode, Jabo, or before or after the Hard Rock 2021 in that post-race episode, I told you that just like I knew at the start line I was ready for something, you know, I knew I had a special day in me and physically I was super fit, super acclimatized in mountain training mode. Psychologically, I'd been waiting for a decade for my chance to arrive at that start line. And those confluence of factors put me in a position to have the race of my life, one of the races of my life. This year, I did not feel that same energy at the start line. And Harmony and Ryan even commenting after the fact, who have been at both of these races, that coming through Cunningham, which is the first crew point at mile nine, very early in the race, that in 2021, I crossed the little creek there with a huge smile on my face, just looking like I was having the time of my life. And that already in Cunningham, I was flustered, didn't look like I was filled with that joy and spirit that you really do need in order to perform at your best at Hard Rock. Going back a little bit further, one of the things that I said in some of my pre-race interviews and that I was genuinely feeling was like a deep sense of nervousness. And I never get nervous ever for races. Like I usually have that instinct of how it's going to go. And either way, I can find peace internally and get to a start line without like an overwhelming sense of like fear, like fear and nervousness. I was feeling that this year, which was bizarre. And I think that that was sort of like my subconscious saying, screaming to me, bro, you are not ready for this. Like this is Hard rock, bro. You don't just like show up at hard rock and hope for the best, you know, and bank on your experience and like, just like hope that a miracle happens. You just don't do that. And I have been in the sport long enough to know to be smarter than that. I didn't train enough to race in the style that I chose to. Also, in those early miles, I just wasn't feeling it. I missed a turn early. I was just kind of in my own head. Physically, I wasn't feeling great. I was troubleshooting and problem solving way too early. I just never was in a groove ever. And so by the time you get to Ure, that first point, the accumulated fatigue of 60 miles on the hard rock course of troubleshooting in a historically hot, hard day finally caught up to me. And also I think there's a psychological thing of like, you see your crew, you know, and you sort of let your guard down and like the crisis just kind of happens, you know, because you're like in a safe space. And that's what happened at your A. You were there. Maybe, maybe you tell the audience what you saw and I can then go give my sign. Ooh, yeah. That was the worst I've ever seen you at a race. Um, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, well, I think what's also so important for the listener or the casual fan is to recognize like how truly infinite this course is. Um, and of course, I had been to the San Juans before, but not for a long time. And I'm so glad that I got out on the course earlier in the day 
uh, Hank Mustang and I hiked up to 13,000 feet to see you come through American Basin, which was just such a wonderful experience um, in a vacuum, but also just during the race, it was so much cooler because it really put into perspective how yeah, infinite this undertaking is. Whereas you climb 33,000 feet of elevation, you're above tree line most of the day. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful, but almost in an unsettling way where you're really put in your place. Um, and I felt that. And I think that maybe led to the immensity of of my reaction and seeing you at your ray. But yeah, you came in and plop down in the chair and then suddenly there were 50 people in a semicircle around us most of whom had cameras and phones out and you were um basically just repeating how fucking terrible you felt over and over but then you started shaking and you started rubbing your eyes and i could kind of tell that you just weren't really awake behind your face in a way that seemed yeah, unsettling. And then you told us that you had hit your head. You had taken a digger. Your right arm was kind of covered in dirt and had a couple scrapes here and there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I was legitimately worried about you continuing, which I've never experienced before. But I also wanted you to get out of the aid station because of how many people were around and because you had started shaking. So I basically said, like, let's stand up and start walking. Um, and we did that and walked up Campbird Road just a little bit. And um, yeah, I'll hand it back to you. But the the thing that really stayed with me after that is for the next hour, at least, I really regretted not looking in your eyes and saying, hey, it's okay if you want to quit. Like, that's okay. And yes, your family is here and all your friends are here. But, you know, we're just sitting here chilling and... Um, we're here to do whatever and that's fine. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was the perspective of the crew. And then I couldn't really stop thinking about you going up because of course, what happens after your ray is a vertical mile, like 5,600 feet of climbing in less than 10 miles. So take us through that. Well, Harmony did say to me in your ray, like, listen, do the right thing. You don't need to keep going. You have nothing to prove. And for whatever reason, I walked out of there with Topher Gaylord, my homeboy, guy who's paced me now a couple of times over Virginia's Pass at Hard Rock, a guy who I deeply respect and admire. And, you know, immediately upon leaving the aid station, I was just overcome with the desire to turn around and walk back. You know, just sort of like, what are you doing here? And that was sort of what I was communicating to Topher too, this poor bastard who had to listen to me just bitch and moan for such a long time. And basically what I communicated to him is exactly what I said earlier is like, dude, like, why do I keep doing this? Like, I can't just bank on the fact that I've done a bunch of these races and I've been in the sport for a long time and show up at hard rock and think everything's going to be cool. You know, just because I had a good day in 2021, like in order to race at the level that I want to, I need to be committed. And I haven't been committed as an athlete since hard rock 2021. In fact, Everybody who listens to this will know the feeling of when you're just in your groove as an, in, as an athlete where the training's coming easy, when it feels like your body 
is absorbing all the training, recovering well. You've got a psychological energy and enthusiasm about getting out the door every day. And even on the hard ones, when you've got a big workout to do, you're like feeling jazzed about it. You get through it and you feel like you're getting better and better. I have not had that feeling in two years, man. And it's because like my life force, my energy is just going in a different direction. And this fundamental tension that I've had of like pretending to still be a pro athlete and like having, being a dad and a business owner and, and everything else that I have going on, those two things, they just can't coexist anymore. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come to a point where we talk about what's next. And obviously I don't think we'll make any decisions right here, right now, but like, that's what I just feel in the aftermath of this race and that. Topher and I talked about leaving Uray. As we walked up the road, we saw the Japanese photographers who were there from Goldwyn multiple times. They had driven up the road to just document <laughs> me <laughs> traipsing up the hill. And of course, every time I saw them, I was like, I just want to jump in their truck. I want to get in their car and I want to drive back down to Uray and I want to quit. And we kept going. And we got to the top of Virginia's Pass. And as we got higher and higher, for whatever reason, the altitude really kicked the shit out of me this year at Hard Rock. And this goes to just lack of, you know, preparation and things like that, I think. But when we got to the top of Virginia's Pass and at, sat at Kroger's Canteen and saw Joe Grant and the team up there, I said to Joe, dude... I don't know how I'm going to leave Telluride. Like, I don't know how I'm going to leave Telluride. Like, this is so bad. And I just want to quit. I don't know how I'm going to leave. And he just said, dude, you know, like, just keep going one step at a time, whatever. And we make our way out of the aid station there, and it's super steep and precipitous immediately. And then you sort of do a little traverse, and then it gets pretty steep but smoother, as you make your way down into Telluride. And the last couple miles into the aid station, because it was a smoother downhill trail, we were losing elevation, I started to feel a little bit better. I started to move a little bit better. So by the time we got to Telluride, it wasn't as hard for me to like, you know, leave Telluride as I anticipated it to be. Everybody who was there said that I looked better than I did at Uray, et cetera. And then leaving Telluride with Rich Lockwood, my new pacer, things unraveled violently going up Oscar's Pass to the point where I was having a legitimate crisis and really, really doubted whether I could get off the mountain, period. So maybe I'll pause there, but that's how things evolved after Telluride, after Ure. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition and their branch chain amino acid drink mix, the product I use more than any other in my day-to-day -day life. The BCAA drink mix is part of my morning routine every day before I get out the door for training. I smash a serving of this delicious and essential amino acid combination. Gnarly BCAAs provide a vegan trifecta of leucine, isoleucine, and valine, which research suggests work together to increase protein synthesis and muscle growth to keep you strong and healthy on the trails. Research also shows that if consumed in the 20 to 30 minutes 
before exercise and even during longer training sessions. BCAAs and leucine in particular can help minimize muscle protein breakdown, thus reducing post-exercise soreness and speeding recovery between training sessions. I swear I can feel the difference in my strength, recovery, and general energy levels when I have my BCAAs and when I don't. And in all the conversation about carbohydrates and protein and calories per hour, I feel like BCAAs often get lost in the mix, even though they are by definition essential. Don't skimp on the essentials. Pick up a can of the gnarly BCAAs at gonarly.com and use code FREETRAIL15. Gonarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15. Yeah, and we I was there in Telluride and, and you did look much better, but the uh it was what probably four hours from Ure to Telluride. I actually am not sure if that's accurate, but during that time we were all, you know, the it was a 50-50 in our minds whether or not you were going to continue. And maybe actually this is a good time to pause to talk about the ethos of hard rock. Um it's such a in my mind, different race than other ultras in part because it's not called a race. It's called a run. And the director doesn't call himself a race director. He calls himself a run director. Mm -hmm. And you get 48 hours to finish instead of like the 30 that is usual, it seems like in, in 100 mile races. So I want you to speak to the difference that that inspires in you and inspired in you in this particular race. Um, because one thing I'll add is that there's always an elite group of people in these hundred mile efforts that are the ones that are trying to actually win the race. Um, but that is such a small percentage of the people that toe the line. And most of the other people that are there are really just trying to finish. And it seems whereas um, in some races, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm shunned was the word that comes to mind. It's not necessarily shunned uh, to not finish, but at this race, it feels like there is a different kind of ethos and a different kind of maybe pressure to not quit. And I wonder if you can speak to that, just to the spirit of hard rock or the way that it differs from other races. Yeah, totally. So this was one of the things that I was just trying to keep in mind in the days leading up to the race where I was overcome with this nervousness and fear because I just know hard rock is such an absolute monster. You mentioned it earlier, but you use the word immensity and it is such a huge, immense challenge and course that it's difficult to truly articulate to people who have not been to the San Juans. And at the same time, it is a sacred, beautiful opportunity that every self-respecting trail runner wants to experience. And so when you have that sacred opportunity, you have to do it justice. You know, you have to honor that opportunity and you do, at least I felt an obligation. Like you can't quit, right? Like if you quit, you are stealing an opportunity from somebody who has been trying for 10 years to get into this race. And I definitely felt that one of the things I posted before the race is just like that. I wanted to embody the hard rock spirit in my race. And so when things did unravel, like I was thinking that like, 
dude, this is hard rock. This isn't a race. This is you against the mountains. Like, don't worry about those guys ahead of you. Don't worry about the people who are absolutely, I'm sure, closing the gap behind you. Like, this is hard rock. This is a run. This isn't a race. The other thing is, you know, it's wild and tough. Like, you got to be tough. You got to be tough. You know, this is hard. You got to be tough. And so those were the things that I was sort of thinking to myself until it got to a point where it was like, I'm fucked. This is over. Like, I can't, I physically can't do this. And that was what happened up on Oscar's pass. But I think, you know, to your point, yes. Like when you get into hard rock and things get hard for most people, they've spent such a long time trying to get into the event that you can't access a deeper level of determination at the moments where you would otherwise maybe pack your bags and go home. And, you know, I, I, do also think that the spirit of like, it's you against the mountains, it's you against the course, not you against competitors does make hard rock unique. That being said, for sure, I was there to try and compete against competitors. And, you know, there is like a little bit of a, I don't know, inauthenticity in that, you know, sometimes you have to sort of like balance those two spirits that, you know, between being competitive and being kind of like, on a personal journey against the mountains. But yeah, I mean, those were the, those were some of the thoughts that were going through my head as it became clear to me that this was not gonna be the smooth day like I had in 2021. Like this was gonna be a day where I did need to look for reasons to keep going. So- Yeah, one of the things that occurred to me in Ure, um, because of course we've had this conversation after races, we've gotten deep into the kind of the weeds of the philosophy of the thing um, in terms of the mental fortitude that it takes and how much the attitude plays a role in the quality of the experience. But one, a thought that I had at Ure is I'm not sure that you realized you wanted to win until it was obvious you weren't going to. Yeah. And I guess my question is, do you think that's what you are dealing with in Ure? And kind of to tag on to that, what is the difference or where is the line between discomfort and disability? And how do you, in the moment, ascertain where your decision-making is coming from in terms of whether or not to continue? What was the first part again? <laughs> Did just the did you know that you wanted to win? Okay, yeah. Okay, so this is what I wanted to say when you brought that up. Definitely in the back of my mind, I was like, listen, you know, you're the fastest American on this course. You're 37. Like Francois, Killian are not here, right? Like, if you're ever gonna have a chance at winning hard rock, it's this year, right? And also in my career, like that's the thing that I lack, right? Like I've been a solid athlete for 15 years. It's something I take a lot of pride in. And I do wanna come around to talking about this in a little bit, but I've been like a solid, consistent contender on the international circuit for a while, but I do not have like a win at hard rock or a win at Western States. Like I can compete for podiums, but like winning at hard rock would be like the ultimate way for me to like, I don't know, not necessarily wrap up my career, but it would make me feel really proud to have that. And I just felt like, okay, like this is probably your best opportunity, right? Like this is probably, um, this is probably it. And 
I also, at the same time, should have acknowledged, like, dude, you did not do the training necessary to even consider yourself a factor in today's race. But, you know, I've been a competitor my whole life. I've been, uh, you know, a competitor in this sport for 15 years. And yeah, I w- I'm not ashamed to say that, like, I did hope, like, for a miracle on a miracle day that the universe would just reward my hard work and sacrifices over a decade and a half and maybe open up a miraculous, you know, mysterious fitness that would allow me to compete for the win. And as that did slip away, yeah, that's when you're like, okay, now what are you out here for? You know? And for the entirety of the day, like from the earliest miles, I knew like, this is not the day. Like this is, doesn't feel like 2021. And it was a hard day in general with the heat and the snow and things like that. And so from an early point in the race, I did have to change the psychology and start looking for reasons of like, why are you out here? And anyway, like I continued to like try and compete through that like first half of the race. And then to the second part of your question of like, when do you know, like the, the line between, was it like, well, that'll be a good way to get us up Chapman. So the discomfort did turn to disability. Yeah. You left Telluride and you have to hike up again, like almost a vertical mile to 13,000 feet in the pitch black of the middle of the night. Uh, Take us up and down Oscars. Okay. So Rich and I, Rich Lockwood and I leave Telluride and start walking out, out of town. And it's sort of like very gentle uphill to start before you start climbing in earnest. And again, it's a 4,500 foot climb out of Telluride to the top of Oscars Pass, which is like 13,100 feet. And the higher we got, the worse I got. And I had vocalized some skepticism about my ability to make it to the finish line to Topher, but was able to like, you know, continue to sort of believe that it was possible to get to the finish line. And I was troubleshooting the whole time, right? Like I'm eating, I'm taking electrolytes, I'm taking amino acids, I'm rehydrating, like feeling like I'm doing what it would take to navigate a low point. Getting through Telluride and then halfway up Oscars Pass, that's when I really started vocalizing like I am not in a good place. Like I, this is not okay, Rich, just so you know, like I'm really struggling right now and I don't know what to do. And at that point, like really the only thing you can do is keep moving forward. And then near the top, it just was so bad. I was taking like three to five steps at a time and then just like leaning on my poles and like gasping for air and just like, I can't physically do this. Like I was done, you know, I'm, 78 miles into the hard rock at this point. And, and is that scary? A hundred percent, like terrifying. Like I can't get to Chapman right now. Like I don't, 
I definitely can't also turn around and walk all the way back to Telluride. Like, this is bad. This is really bad. It was also really cold up there for the first time all day. There's a ton of water crossing. So, you know, your feet and shoes are like soaking wet with frozen water. I got my jacket on with my hood up. Runners are starting to come past me. Like Courtney came past me and Javi Dominguez came past me. Arlen Glick came past me. And eventually, thank God, I get over the top of Oscar's Pass. And up there, you get like a small bit of cell phone reception, which I knew because I had texted Harmony from up there earlier in the week to let her know that I would be down in Telluride as I was doing a training run on the course and she was going to pick me up. So when I was up there, I took my phone out and I texted you, Harmony, Ryan, and dad, all the same thing saying, I'm dropping out in Chapman. I can hardly walk period, send. And we just walked, we walked downhill to Chapman, which is like a hyper-technical, super steep, just miserable trail. And when I got to Chapman, man, I was overcome with the deepest relief, like a sense of genuine joy of like, oh my God, I made it. Like I'm safe and thank God I'm here. I can finally quit. Like that's what, that was my attitude entering the Chapman aid station is holy shit, thank God, total relief and elation. I can finally quit. And then what? And then entering the aid station, I met a man named Bill Shum, who will become an important character in the story, who was the aid station captain. And what I said to Bill was, hey, I'm done. I need a place to lie down for a little while. And so he shuttled me into a tent with a couple cots in it. And upon entering the tent, I saw Avery Collins was always also in there dead asleep, fast asleep with like a buff around his face, like bundled in some sleeping bags. And so, you know, I was sort of thinking like, okay, well, at least it's not, not just me and laid down and sort of took some time to rest, fell asleep myself for probably like 30 minutes And then I woke up and I knew that Utah and Oscar, the two Japanese photographers were there in Chapman because I saw them as I was coming in. I told them I'm done. I'm done. I got to just rest for a little bit and then I'm out. And I told, I asked the, I asked Bill in the tent, Hey, could you, could you grab those Japanese photographers and, and bring them in here? And he did. And I said, Hey, Utah, I need a ride back to Silverton. And Bill, this is where it's hard. He goes, it's amazing. He goes, shut up, go back to sleep. (laughs) Shut up, go back to sleep. Like he was pissed. He was pissed. Like, dude, you were not dropping out. Shut up, go back to sleep. And I said, bro, get off my case. Like I don't just drop out of races here. Okay. Like I 
physically can't do it. Like I take this shit seriously. I wouldn't just drop because things are hard. I physically can't get off my case. He said, shut up, go back to sleep. And I did. I went back to sleep for like, for like 90 minutes probably. And then we woke up and while I was there, like it turns out it was Avery's crew chief, which I didn't realize at the time. But he like rubbed my, like they took my shoes and socks off and dried them out. Avery's crew chief like gave me a leg massage because it was really my legs. Like I really just, I felt like I couldn't even walk up or downhill, you know? And that's like what I texted you guys. Like I can't even walk. Like I can't make it. I can't make it. So they gave me a leg massage. They gave me like these warm water bottles that I had like tucked in my jacket, like in my armpits. And I was like feeling all cozy and... And then I woke up, I drank three cups of coffee. I drank a, or I ate a donut with some sprinkles on it. <laughs> and Rich, the hero, just was sitting there for two and a half hours while I was in this catatonic state. And I woke up at probably like 5.15. And it was like, are we doing this? Like, are we actually going to try to do this because I had already felt like once I left Telluride, it was like, okay, you got to make it. And then it was like, okay, I can't make it. So I was worried that if I left Chapman, that the same thing was going to happen. Right. But at least I had this feeling in the back of my mind of like, okay, well, at least now you can turn around and come back to Chapman. Like if you try, you can turn around and come back and at least you will have tried. And Rich to his immense credit, was totally game, you know, after barely walking up and over Oscar's pass. It was like, let's go, man. Like, I'm ready. Let's go. And so we left right at dawn, which was poetic because I didn't have to put my headlamp back on. And it was a new day. It was a new day. Spiritually. And what happened before you left the aid station? So... The last thing I was going to say is Bill, my guardian angel, angel and my arch nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> Once we got kitted back up and ready to go, he walked us out of the aid station like a quarter mile or half a mile to where the aid station used to be in this meadow before you cross a river and start climbing up towards Grant Swamp Pass. And I just said to Bill, bro, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot believe I'm leaving right now because again, two and a half hours before I arrived so happy that I was there so that I could quit and not spend one more step on the hard rock course. Cause it had just absolutely taken everything from me. And I said, bro, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What is your name? And Bill said, don't worry about it. Chapman Aid Station, which was just like, again, the most beautiful, poetic, appropriate answer in that moment of just like the hard rock spirit of don't worry about it. 
I did my job. Now go do yours. And it's not about me. It's, you know, it's about the team at the aid station. Like we're here, we're volunteers to get you guys out on the course to do what you came here to do, which is kiss the rock. And anyway, like it just was so powerful. And I told, I told Dale about it after I finished Dale, the run director. And after I finished, he came into the gym as I was laying on a cot just to chat with me. And I told him about it and I could see like this twinkle in Dale's eye, you know, like this is hard rock. Right. And then the next day, much to Bill's chagrin, but to my joy, Dale told the story at the award ceremony of what I had told him, which is this story of Bill getting, he didn't use my name, but he said getting runners through the aid station. When somebody asked for, for his name, he said, don't worry about it. Chapman aid station. And then we got out of there, bro. And fucking, I made it. I just kept walking and we made it. And we later learned that, um, Bill has a 100% record at getting people out of that aid station, whereas no one has dropped on his watch at Chapman in either direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this too. And one of the things I said to Bill is like, dude, like, I mean, dude, I've been in the game for a while, you know, like that was the most powerful thing in my career. And what I said to him was just like, dude, I like, I need to pay this forward, you know, like he's, he showed the stats on our office hour zoom call yesterday. And I think it was 379 of 379 runners over the course of the last three years have all been through Chapman zero drops. And so I was just, I've just been thinking about ways in which I can pay that forward. <laughs> and few things come to mind. Number one, if like Ryan or Rich gets into the race next year, you know, I can, I can do my part to help get those guys through. But also if neither of them do, maybe I can go to Chapman or maybe I can go to Maggie's, you know, because it'll change direction. And so Chapman's really early in the day. And maybe I can do, do, maybe I can be Bill Jr., you know, go out there and just freaking getting verbal altercations with runners who want to drop and tell them, <laughs> shut up, go back to sleep. Well, just also as your brother, let me remind you that there are hundreds of people in this sport that would say that you're already paying it forward uh, in immense ways that are bringing a lot of meaning and inspiration to so many people. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by HVMN and the Ketone IQ Supplement. Ketone IQ has become a huge phenomenon in endurance sport in recent years, allowing athletes of all levels to access new levels of performance. It was first adopted in cycling, especially among the professional ranks, but it's now finding its way into the running world, which is awesome and with great success. I recall seeing British ultra star Tom Evans smashing a ketone IQ as he jumped in the raft at the Lucky Chucky River Crossing on his way to victory, the 2023 Western States 
Well, if it's good enough for Tom, it's good enough for me. Ketone IQ was invented by HVMN to help athletes of all levels reach their physical potential by boosting cognitive performance. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you know that your brain is key to performing at your best as a runner from fatigue resistance to improved focus and mental clarity. Ketone IQ can give you deeper brain power when the miles and exhaustion start to add up. This is something you really have have to experience to understand so make sure you give ketone iq a try you can save 30 percent off your first subscription order of ketone iq at hvmn.com forward slash free trail 30 again visit hvmn forward slash free trail 30 and subscribe upon checkout for 30 percent off there is a link in the show notes of this episode as well thanks to hvmn so let's get to the end of the race and then we can kind of turn the page a little bit but so again, from the crew perspective, everyone, um, when someone's running a fast time in this direction, the aid stop at Chapman is around two or three in the morning. When we knew Dylan was going to be several hours behind, we made the decision not to go to Chapman, uh, which we were retrospectively very happy for because we probably would have driven it. I home. was pissed at you guys in the moment too. <laughs> yeah, I know we could tell, yeah. but what that means uh, from a crew perspective is that uh, that uh, is a night with no sleep, which means we go straight from Chapman back to Silverton at which point Dylan might finish at five to six in the morning. But we knew that wasn't going to happen this time. So we all got a little bit of ultra beauty rest, woke up in the morning, checked Twitter. Okay. Dylan took a nap at Chapman. He left. Okay, good which means we had the whole morning to kind of get a coffee, get a breakfast, and then go wait at the river crossing, which is a special part of the course. Um, you know, we took a swim in the river. We walked up the trail a little bit. Uh, our mom and dad were there, a bunch of friends, and we just started hanging out and kind of waiting for Dylan, who, according to the GPS tracker, was still very much lumbering his way downhill into the river crossing. And then it was a very emotional moment when we saw you from across the river. And I want you to just take us through that to the finish. Yeah. So going back a couple of miles, Rich and I came over the top of the final climb, which is Putnam Ridge, which again is just like the most ridiculously hard way to end a race. You know, if the final five, 600 feet of climbing is just like marching up this wall of Alpine tundra off trail. And then you drop down into the final drainage and the downhill that takes you to the river crossing. And that trail is also like horrendous, you know, like miles of talus fields. And, but at the top of that final climb, and there's a great picture of this, Rich and I hugged and it was like, oh my God, I am going to make it like, I can't believe it. I've just been like wanting to quit for whatever it was at that point, 28 hours and I'm going to make it. And then eventually slowly, but surely keep going downhill and you get to the river and it's like, you know, you finally have a sense of civilization for the first time since Telluride really. And yeah, of course, all you guys were there. You, Henry, mom, dad, Ryan, Harmony, Rhodes, you know, like everybody. Henry, Henry, I said. And uh, I was sort of expecting you guys all to be there, but it was like, wow, this is, I just, 
it was worth it, you know, like everybody made a point to be here. I mean, it's funny because mom, <laughs> a few weeks ago when I saw her, when I came down to Boulder for a wedding, she was like, yeah, I just can't miss it. She was like, it feels like you're in the golden hour of your career. And I was like, yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? But like also, fuck you, you know, <laughs> but also like, um, yeah, like having you and mom and dad all there for the first time since probably like maybe Western states back in the day, it was special. And then, you know, I just covered those last two miles. And then, of course, one of the things that really gave me the motivation to keep going is because I've like just had this vision in my head of like carrying roads to the rock, you know, and like being a dad and this being like a new chapter. It was, he was 11 months that day, uh, meaning he's almost a year old. And so like rounding the final corner, giving Rich a big hug and just thanking him profusely for babysitting me all the way to the finish line through the lowest moment of my trail running career. And then picking up my baby and walking down the finishing shoot with Harmo. It was just like, uh, it was it was worth it. And maybe like it was how it was supposed to be, you know? And, and that just like kind of gave me, um, again, just like an immense feeling of pride and relief of just like, wow, like I can't believe I made it. And I think that's exactly what I said to Dale is just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. When he gave me my, finishing medal. And, uh, anyway, we got it done. So uh, this is how I kind of want to turn the page and just do a little thinking, um, out loud with each other, because this is what's really interesting to me at is the emotion behind it, because you were in tears when you crossed the river and you went to go hug mom. And then she looked right at me and said, he's crying. And then she was crying. And then I was crying. And I had taken a video of you crossing the river and just sent it to like a few random friends who I had been keeping in touch with who were interested. And they responded that they were crying. And so what I want to pay attention to is that, um, you know, there's... I guess when I get emotional, I, I try to pay attention to why, because I think in part, um, you know, that's what we're here for and what we want the most, both above the surface and beneath the surface. And that is just to be moved and to feel. And I think there's a very valid question in this sport, which is why, you know, why do people do this? Why do people put themselves at this edge and I think there's an argument that involves cheap thrills, even though they're not very cheap, which would then lead to a second argument, which is like, honestly, a little bit of sick masochism. And then there's another argument, which is, um, you know, exploration of, of the truth of suffering. And it takes a very specific kind of person to put themselves through this kind of pain and I want to unpack this idea of why a little bit more. And I guess one of the things, and I was talking to Henry about this in one of our many hours in the car and just this epic surroundings. And I guess I have something of a theory that what you guys are really doing 
is interfacing with a scaled down version of existence at its most fundamental. And I think, and I guess this is a question, but I think what you're doing is ultimately trying to prove to yourselves and also to the world that you have what it takes to survive. And I think this is one of the things that makes onlookers get emotional. And that is just the simplicity that it's worth it to try. Um, there's a, I think, very scary question at the heart of all of us, um, usually beneath the surface, but definitely that also comes above the surface at times. And that is why do we try uh, knowing as we do that all of our efforts will not ultimately save us? Why do we continue? And my question is, does that ring true to you? And also as a part of that, describe the golden hour and the emotion that is endemic to that. Yeah, I think you're right in that, like we're, we're seeking like a self-transcendent experience, right? Of just like, this is so out of the ordinary that it takes you out of all your patterns and the stories you tell yourself and the just mundane ho-hum normal day-to-day -day existence that there's like something super powerful about the sport in that respect and I think that's why it carries this like almost quasi spiritual nature to it and why the people who are in the sport decide to like devote their lives to it. Right. Is because it genuinely does. I mean, I hear from people all the time now who are like trail running, you know, cause we do these, we have this funny, you know, sort of cliche fun saying that's tongue in cheek, that trail running will save the world. Right. And so I hear from a bunch of people now who are like, it's true, you know, trail running saved my life. And without it, I'd be, you know, in jail or dead or, divorced or whatever. And like, there is something about it that is deeply like self-transcendent and self-improving. And that's like, as I've thought about this finish from a few days ago, like there's no question that that finish will have a deep personal lasting impact on me, not only just like the memory of it and the, um, you know, emotion of it, but like the fact that I made it under those circumstances on a day where I knew it was over. And to the point where I was like yelling at a volunteer because he was trying to make me continue. <laughs> and you know, maybe, maybe that shows up somewhere else, you know, next time something gets hard. Um, and yeah, like to tie it to golden hour too, that's when you really do see the people who are out there with the most pure intentions. Right. And I do want to come back to this, like, you know, what comes next type thing, but I did go to golden hour, of course, five o'clock on Sunday morning. And probably saw 10 people finish in that hour. And each of those individuals, of course, has been out on the course for whatever it was, 18 hours longer than I was. 
And not only were they moving a lot slower and confronting the exact same immensely difficult course, but they have the psychological challenge of like knowing that they could get timed out at any aid station. Like they're getting chased by a, you know, avatar of like a grim reaper that could pull them off the race course at any time, including at a time when they've been out there for 45 hours or something, right? They could get to the Putnam aid station and get timed out. Right. And they're just, it's heroic and you can't help, but just feel an immense amount of respect for those individuals because, you know, they do embody that the hard rock spirit and they're not out there to try and win or finish on the podium or, you know, break any records. They're, they're out there for that same sort of self-transcendence reason. And yeah, I don't know, man, like one of the things I've been thinking about is like, okay, what comes next, you know, and being where I am and having our little business with free trail and stuff like that's my next chapter, you know, and I'm so happy that it is because I can remain as ingrained and involved in the sport as I have been during my professional athletic career. Like I won't lose that. I won't lose that. And just being around the community is just like immensely impactful and spiritual. And the last month having gone to Western States and hard rock, it's just like, how the fuck do you go back to normal life after this? You know, it's like deep, deep experiences, you know? And it's a shame that not everybody gets to enjoy that because it's just, it does change you. And even those days that are so traumatic and so hard, like, holy shit, thank God I got to do that. And I think that's part of, I think everyone does know that actually. Um, but I think that's the thing that's really interesting is the, the hundred miles guarantees that there's a low point. It's like a 10 day meditation retreat is better than a three day meditation retreat because you are guaranteed to have a low point. And also in our lives, we're guaranteed to have a low point. And I think that's one of the things that is so affecting about this sport and so inspiring about this sport, um, even and especially to those who don't run, is just this juxtaposition with the energy of achievement and the energy of determination and of perseverance. Um in the same way that it is deeply affecting to see, say, for example, you know, a single mother working three jobs so that she can take care of her kids. And that is ultimately this very human, deeply ingrained understanding that it is worth it to try. And I want to bring this together actually by talking about the myth of Sisyphus <laughs> is what I have been thinking about this whole time. Um, of course, the myth of Sisyphus is... Um, this figure in Greek mythology who was punished by the gods and condemned to repeat forever the same meaningless task of pushing a giant boulder up a mountain only to see it roll down again. Yeah. And this is what he does every day. He carries the boulder up to the top of the mountain. And as soon as he gets there, he's assured that the rock will roll back down. And the next day he has to start over and do it again. And it's such a wonderful metaphor for existence. And um, Albert Camus, of course, is the one who wrote the book on it and very much popularized it in the kind of modern philosophical sense. 
And I was just reading through that book again, and I want to um, read a couple things from it, and we can get into what comes next too as a part of this. But one thing that that Camus says is, uh, man stands face to face with the irrational. He feels within him his longing for happiness and for reason. The absurd lies in the juxtaposition between the fundamental human need to attribute meaning to life, as well as the unreasonable silence of the universe that comes in response. Wow. So Camus claims um, that it, it this is the philosophy of absurdism, right? And he claims that in the realization of the absurd or in truly dedicating yourself to absurd undertakings requires a revolt. Um, and this is a little bit grim, but this is in his estimation, the thing that you have two choices. One is no longer living. And the other is this revolt against the absurdism. And I guess this is kind of a lofty claim, but I think ultra running is this one of the most purest kinds of revolt. It's like you guys are saying, oh, yeah, gods, check this out. Watch how hard I can roll this boulder uphill. Yep, yep, yep. And Camus sees Sisyphus as this hero, um, one who lives life to the fullest and one who hates death. And one who is, like all of us, condemned to this meaningless task of waking up every day and trying our hardest, even though we know uh, that doing our best will not save us. And so in some way, what happens here is this lesson that, um, and I'll stop pontificating here in a moment and turn it into a question, I promise, but what counts is is just how much we can live and how much we can feel and how much we can be moved. And also, you know, with how much style we can roll the boulder uphill, with how much truth we can encircle ourselves with, with people and with experiences and with vistas and with solitude. And also this understanding that no matter what we do, there is no lasting satisfaction. And you get to the end of the race and you set a course record and it's like still the next day you have to wake up and make breakfast. And the same thing is true with complete and utter defeat. Like no misery is final. Yeah. Um, and the end of the book of the myth of Sisyphus by Camus is this line quote, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart one must imagine Sisyphus happy. So my question to you is, as the heroic and also neurotic person that you are, <laughs> what do you see as your next boulder? Do you want to continue running? And if so, in what capacity do you see yourself doing that? Holy shit. Was that like the biggest and best podcast question in the history of podcasting? <laughs> Yeah, I got really uh, high on coffee this morning so I could think about that and write it down. Wow. Um, first of all, before we get to that, you know, you and I have always been prone to excess in all things, you know, like you with your meditation retreats and cycling and me with my running and us together with our long nights at the bars. And I don't know, like there's something about just going huge, right? Like going huge in all aspects is like 
just so addicting and so fun. And yeah, it is also absurd. We're fighting against absurdity. And yeah, so what's next? So going back to when I was with Topher on the course, one of the things I was just saying to him is just like, man, I hate this. You know, like I used to be the guy who is like steady, eddy, dependable, consistent performer, right? Now I'm the dude who's fucking exploding halfway through the race and who's likely not going to make it to the finish line. Like, I don't like this version of me. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing showing up at Hard Rock, not trained, and hoping for a miracle? In sports, you always get what you deserve. And that's one of the things that I just love about it and why I've always been an athlete is because, like, you can see the work you put in have a result, right? And then when you screw up, you deserved it. You learn from it. You course correct the next time you hope to get better. But if you show up at hard rock, not sufficiently trained and like try to compete to win the race, of course you're going to blow up in your A, you fucking idiot. Like <laughs> seriously. And I'm just so pissed at myself about that. Like, cause there's no reason that I couldn't have taken, you know, the more the Jeff Browning, Paul Terranova attacked or like, you know, run a similar time that like Javi and Courtney did, you know, just by running more conservatively, more intelligently and just acknowledging where I am as an athlete right now, not just like holding on to Debo 2021, you know, like I knew in my soul, I'm not that athlete right now. I also know in my soul that athlete is still in me. And if I get the chance, I would love an opportunity to really buckle down, focus, and take a swing at something. That being said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to show up at races. I'm not going to be in this half in, half out situation anymore. And this fundamental tension that I mentioned earlier between my life as a professional athlete and my life as a, you know, father, small business owner, like it's just not been possible to have those two things coexist simultaneously. And maybe it's a personal failing of mine. Like, you know, just seeing Tyler Green finish second at Western States again, also with a son who's like, whatever, six weeks younger than Rhodes. I'm like, shit, why can't I get my, why can't I get it together? Like, I just have not been able to get myself at a point where I'm like really focused and disciplined to the level that I need to be to perform at the level that I always have in the sport. And the fact that I still have the expectation that I can just ride whatever talent I have and whatever experience I've amassed to these spectacular performances is just idiotic. You get what you deserve. And so I'm, that's one of the main takeaways from this race is like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm not going to like put myself through that, physical and emotional ringer in order just to get another finish. And I'm again, very proud of what happened at hard rock and the fact that I was able to find the resolve to get to the finish line, but I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I don't want to do that again. And like, I am not saying I'm retiring or whatever, but like if Trail running is interesting because like, it's not like most sports where 
at a certain point you do kind of need to make a decision. Do you continue or do you retire? If it were that type of sport, this moment would be that moment for me. Tom Brady after winning that Super Bowl with the Bucks and retiring and then coming, you know, backtracking on it and coming back for another ride. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I don't know what comes next for me. I'd really like one or two more good swings. And I also know like I'm 37, right? My probably my best, best years are coming close to being in the rearview mirror. But at the same time, Benat, who finished second over the weekends, 42. Javi Dominguez, who finished thirds, 48. Jeff Browning's almost 52. That legend still performing. And I would really like to be able to, to do that type of stuff too. But at a certain point, I really need to just be realistic with myself and stop setting myself up for just massive disappointment. So. Well, I'd really like to go back to hard rock in the other direction <laughs> next year. So, well, I guess we should I talk hope, about I that. hope Ryan or Rich or someone is running. <laughs> well, it's funny. Because but yeah, I, you know, I, we're, an, we're I, an aspirational animal. And I think, you know, in my own experience, I am never more happy when I have a very clear objective aspiration, which is accompanied by a very clear set of tasks that lead towards that aspirational object. And of course, as we know, the parts of the brain that are associated with wanting are not connected to the parts of the brain that are associated with having. And so there's this like the, you know, the cliche is absolutely true, which makes it the cliche, which is that the journey is the destination. And I think that knowing you as I do, you are not satiated unless there's a gigantic mountain of some sort directly in front of your field of vision. And I trust that the the manner in which you find that next mountain will be of benefit to you and to your family and to others. And, you know, like, so I left Silverton on Sunday night and got to, uh, flew from Montrose to Denver and where I stepped off the plane to find an absolute cacophonous shit show of millions of people. And then I happened to find a two and a half hour flight delay, which in the moment, definitely struck me as poetic knowing that you had spent two and a half hours at uh, Chapman. And I noticed in my, and this isn't a story of my success, but rather a story of inspiration because I had a choice in that moment and it was definitely not lost on me how to undertake that moment and those hours. And so what I did was eat an edible (laughs) (laughs) and I sat down and I just like, I didn't listen to music and I didn't, um, read and I didn't look at the computer and I just sat at the gate and watched myself get a little bit stoned and felt the hum of impermanence in my body and felt the hum of impermanence surrounding me. And I watched, you know, parents struggle to keep their kids happy, waiting, surrounded by other people. And I watched um, airline employees get yelled at. And I watched crew members you know, looking incessantly at their phone. And yeah, I saw this human discomfort of waiting and endurance that is endemic to every single moment. And it was inspiring to be able to sit there, um, you know, 
and just understand that that is that is existence. And then, of course, you know, we got a text from dad the other day that he was coming to a, a milestone in fundraising at work. And he, of course, he, too, likened it to crossing Oscars pass in yep. the same way where he's like, oh, we finally got this last minute funding. I have crossed the pass and I'm through the aid station. So you are so inspiring to everybody and to be in proximity to this sport, even casually is just richly meaningful. And whether you finish first or in the golden hour at 47 hours and 59 minutes really is, is the same gift to all the people that follow you. And I think I speak for so many people when I just say, thank you for your determination and your effort and your demonstration that it's worth it to try. Thank you, bro. Yeah. And I guess I should say too, as we talk about what's next and you talk about that next mountain in front of me, I feel immensely blessed that I know what that next mountain is, you know, and I'm already climbing it, you know, free trail is Oscars pass too, you know, and it is an immense challenge. And I have spoken very openly on this podcast and in other places about just what a struggle it's been, but also what a joy and what a learning experience it's been and a growth opportunity for me. And I know that long-term it's a place and a channel through which I can have an impact on this community. And really that's all I want to do is be part of the sport, have some kind of an impact, be of service in some way and make a living at the same time. And if I can do that, if I can figure it out, you know, I can walk off into the sunset as an athlete, you know, happy with how everything is gone and, and live my life with a lot of gratitude and a lot of joy and, you know, a lot of like engagement in the work that I do as an athlete, as you know, you know, that's really what's inspired me since I was, as long as I can remember, it's been sports and that's always been my thing. And it is kind of sad and nerve wracking to feel like, okay, well, you know, maybe it's going to be different now, but at the same time, like I really am filled with energy about the next mountain too. And I really love free trail and it's the, the, the core friction and the core challenge that makes me immensely uncomfortable. And that I really need to figure out is just the tension between those two things and if they can coexist and, um, you know, if they can't, so be it. I have a great, um, I still have a great life, a great family, a great career and, um, you know, can move forward as a, as a happy person. But anyway, I just wanted to say that too, because like, I don't want people to feel sorry for me or feel like, you know, that this is the end in any way. Right. Like I genuinely feel like every day is a new beginning and I've never been more committed and more inspired to be committing my life to this sport and this community. And I view that as a privilege. Yeah, man. Well, I think this was your best race ever. <laughs> if by best you mean worst and slowest, we'll take it, but we made it. Yeah. yeah. And what a gift to be able to, you know, put words to it with you and to be along for the ride all these years. Yeah. Well, thanks for hosting, 
bro. And thanks for being there. It was great to have you around throughout the day and mom and dad too. And hormone Ryan and Rhodes and of course, Henry Dills, Hank Mustang. It was a great, a great crew, friends and family. And I was, I was feeling the love the whole time. So appreciate it. Oh yeah. Well, can't wait till the next, next uh, post race podcast. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thanks so much again for, for hosting and steering the conversation. Hopefully it wasn't too self-interested was, navel gazing, hope, but felt thank fun. you to the listeners for making it this far. <laughs> Therapy impermanence. Impermanence. All right. Love you, man. I'm so proud of you. Love you too. Okay, there you have it. The 2023 Hard Rock Story cataloged and documented for the archive. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you learned something. Hope it wasn't too self-involved. Either way, thanks for being here and listening all the way to the end. Also, big thanks to Jason for facilitating this convo and being such a great host. He definitely needs his own podcast. So go give him a follow on Instagram. And if you feel compelled, send him a DM. Tell them to start something up. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Speedland, runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off these great pieces of footwear. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off this entire line of amazing nutrition products. HVMN, visit hvmn.com. Use code FREETRAIL20 for 20% off this really interesting ketone supplement. You also get 30% off your first subscription at hvmn.com. Com. Appreciate you all for listening. Talk to you again very soon. Love you so much. Bye-bye.